to the Disarming Leviathan podcast. My name is Caleb, and this podcast is designed to equip you to missionally engage American Christian nationalists in your life. Uh, Today's episode features a panel discussion from the um, Politics, Polarization, and Peacemaking Conference that we ran here in Arizona. On this particular panel, uh, we have Russell Moore, as well as four of my heroes, uh, local leaders here in Phoenix. Uh, Rick Eford, who is my predecessor at the church that I serve at. Uh, Linda Morris, who is a brilliant leader and a wonderful representation of Jesus. Uh, Kit Danley, uh, who founded Neighborhood Ministries and is a huge part of CCDA. Also one of my heroes, um, Warren Stewart Sr., who is a local pastor for many years, also civil rights leader and activist. And uh, they discuss on this panel how it is that we can represent Jesus well in times of political polarization. So I really am excited to share this with you. I know that it will be a blessing to you. Uh, We also had a few laughs, so look forward to those as well. Without further ado, here is the panel discussion. I'm going to invite our panel uh, to join me now. And as they come up, I will introduce them. Uh, First is Dr. Kit Danley. Kit is the founder and president of Phoenix, Arizona-based Neighborhood Ministries, which is a comprehensive holistic outreach that combines social justice work with many forms of community development, which includes an indigenously-led church. This 41-year-old work has been featured in magazines like World, Christian Century, and Christianity Today. I've heard of that one, Russ. I think it's a good one. Uh, Much learning has happened in the past 42 years. There are many exciting challenges in operating a mission that focuses on the hardest problems in Arizona and Phoenix. But one is to see many young people out of the community take on leadership roles that our community desperately deserves and needs. And Kit is on the forefront of that ministry. Kit and Wayne have been on the uh, marriage adventure for 45 years, have four incredible adult children, spectacular son and daughter-in-law, five beautiful grandchildren. Kit has much to be thankful for. Welcome, Kit Danley. Dr. Warren Stewart has been senior pastor of the First Institutional Baptist Church of Phoenix since 1977. His ministry is characterized by an unwavering commitment and spirit-filled zeal to engage in evangelism and emancipation, meeting the needs of the whole person. He is also recognized by others as a man of conscious commitment, dedication to the cause of moral leadership, human rights, and a soldier of justice and equality. Dr. Stewart has been cited as one of the most influential religious leaders in Arizona and the nation, and his ministry extends internationally. He organized and led two very broad-based coalitions, the Arizonans for a Martin Luther King Jr. state holiday and Victory Together that campaigned for an MLK Jr. Civil Rights Day in Arizona, which was won by a historic vote of the people in the general election on November 3rd, 1992, after a decades-long fight. So if you are an Arizonan and you celebrate MLK Day, Dr. Stewart was the forefront of making that happen here in our great state. In 2015, he was inducted into the 30th anniversary of the MLK Jr. College of Clergy and Laity, Board of Preachers in the Morehouse College, Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel, Atlanta, Georgia. 
Pastor Stewart is a husband, father, grandfather, and mentor who has also earned five degrees, including a doctor of ministry degree from American Baptist Seminary of the West, Berkeley, California. He's the author of five books. His first book is Interpreting God's Word in Black Preaching, which is in its fifth printing. And his latest is titled Victory Together for Martin Luther King Jr., the story of Dr. Warren H. Stewart, uh, Sr. and Governor Evan, uh, Evan Meacham in the historic battle for an MLK holiday in Arizona. Welcome, Dr. Warren Stewart. Miss Linda Morris was called to the ministry in 1986 and has served at the First Pentecostal Church, uh, the Mountain States Council, and the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, including being a foundation member of the PAW's Single People's Alliance and a former member of the Convention Evangelism Outreach Services. After working in Saudi Arabia from early 1995 through late 1997, Linda returned to the U.S., with a passion for outreach, engaging in many endeavors to reach the lost. Some include street ministry, homeless outreach, and prison ministry, as well as discipleship training for various churches and leaders in Arizona and the broader United States. She is passionate to see the church serve in our world as Jesus did in his, and envisions the church united and living out God's intentions across generations, cultures, ethnicities, and denominations. Towards this end, she has been invited to speak at conferences and churches throughout the Valley of the Sun and participates in several ecumenical networks. Linda currently serves uh, as the lead of the Surge Network Women in Leadership Initiative and serves as outreach director at First Pentecostal Church, where she also, also teaches biblical worldview, holistic ministry and evangelism, and outreach for the church's discipleship classes and other groups. She and her husband, Burnett, have a blended family of four adult children, and three grandkids. Her hobbies are genealogy and researching black history. Please welcome Miss Linda Morris. <laughs> Dr. Rick Eford serves as the Director of Church Partnerships at Phoenix Seminary. In this role, he seeks to employ his 40 years of pastoral experience to encourage pastors to connect them with other ministry leaders and to resource them for effective ministry. Rick's academic training for ministry includes a BA in biology from Bryan College, THM in pastoral ministry from Dallas Theological Seminary. What city is that in? Go Cowboys. Dallas Theological Seminary and a D-Min from Phoenix Seminary. Rick uses his training and experience to develop other leaders in addition to his pastoral responsibilities. Uh, he assisted in the founding of Phoenix Seminary has taught as an adjunct professor, served on the board, and was the interim president in the early years of the school. He has led volunteer teams to build homes for orphans in Africa and has taught Christian leaders in Russia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Rick and his wife, Emily, have been married for 50 years. They have two sons and one daughter-in-law and two grandkids. Please welcome Dr. Rick Eford. Um, Tim, can you move this? Where should I put this? George, let's give it up for George, everybody. Uh, so uh, one thing I wanted to say too is uh, these uh, four uh, pillars of the community have also been mentors and coaches and prayer warriors for me. I've learned so much from them. Uh, Rick has been my pastor for over 20 years uh, and I've learned from uh, Linda and Kit and Warren as well. And so not only 
uh, are they pillars in our community, but they are also friends with one another. And between the four of them, there's almost two centuries of ministry in Phoenix uh, on this uh, stage. <laughs> that, that wasn't a joke. I mean, it's just math. So, so thank you, Dr. Moore, for that. What an encouragement uh, from the word of God today. Um, what we thought we might do is just listen to our elders. Uh, so if you call Phoenix home, uh, these are the city elders, and they've been in ministry in various parts of the city in many different ways and through many different seasons, sometimes seasons uh, of summer and sometimes seasons of winter. Although I guess for us, the metaphor is the inverted you get what I'm talking about. So Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We're talking about, and Dr. Moore so uh, vividly helped us to see, there's so much division and divisiveness in the community. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. What do you think he means and how might that shape us today? I thought maybe Kit could get us started. I think so, just, I think it's on. What number is it? It's on now. Okay, hi. So, I, so I've been in this conference today since the early morning. Um, I'm so drawn to spaces like this because of this question. I, I think that uh, in this day and age and in this particular time, uh, many of us long to be those bridge builders, long to be those people that connect uh, the dots for disparate spaces for people who struggle. And so as I was meditating on this particular question going into today, I was reminded of a, um, of a curriculum that I uh, go through with uh, one of our allies, one of our partners called Practicing Peace. And I remembered that um, what it does, this curriculum, is it draws us into a place where we say, how am I practicing peace? Sometimes we think we're practicing peace or we're getting ready for that big conversation or that way to be the bridge builder between these two disparate places. Instead, I think uh, we need to practice peace everywhere. Uh, it can be at home. It can be uh, with our church uh, friends. It can be in our relationships outside our religious spaces where we recognize we're drawing closer, we're better listeners, we're continuing to practice, maybe so that we're getting ready for that big conversation or that role as bridge builder between these two disparate places. And so I think maybe all day today we've been exercising that. We've been practicing peace. We've been practicing with one another the other thing I'd say about practicing peace has to do with the fact that sometimes allies, the very ones we lean on, the very ones that give us a sense that we're not alone, that we're in this world together, working together, sometimes that's who we're fighting with, or that's who we're disagreeing with, and we're tearing up the very fabric of what gets us the ability to go out into the larger conversation or the larger uh situation that's so complex and so difficult but now we don't have each other anymore 
And so I reminded myself, as we remind many of the young leaders in our community, a house divided can't stand. So how do we bring, especially with allies, especially within the church community, especially within the people who we have the most at stake with, how do we come back together again and in solidarity become bridge builders together? My hunger is for peace. Um, I think for for us, we've been in a world of chaos for so long that I believe most people come to church and they say, oh, I'm going to have some peace there. And then they find out that it's not always a peaceful place. But the beauty of sacrificial service is loving one another. And we use that word love as if it's not peaceful, but it's something that we can do on our own strength. The fact that we are called to Christ is that we're called to be like Christ, who, although he was describing his imminent death to his disciples, was going to do it because he wanted to reconcile all of the world back to himself, back to God. And that is the ultimate uh, peacemaking that, that God has given to the church, the ministry of reconciliation. What does that look like? It doesn't mean that I have to know who you are to love you, but it does mean that whatever you do is about what you need from me. You need from me that, that I don't um, hate you based on how you respond. And I don't hate you based on the fact that I don't know you. We are all made in the image and the likeness of God. And I can't find, as I said, I say too often to the young people in my groups, um, I can't find the denomination in Genesis chapter 1. And so there absolutely has never been intended to be a division in God's family. Blessed are the peacemakers. And that's what the kingdom is about. When we were, we had a uh, Zoom call the other day. One just got back from Liberia, had an amazing opportunity there. So we got together and we began to talk about tonight and these questions. And one key thing is there's a huge difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. I don't know if you see that. That's just a subtle difference. It's a very important difference. Peacekeeping is let's not rock the boat. Let's make everybody happy. Jesus didn't do that, neither should we. We are called to be peacemakers. And I think the way that we go about that is we speak truth always with love. Jesus was full of grace and truth. We cannot get imbalanced on one side or the other. They have to be integrated with one another. The psalmist says, or the Proverbs say this, Solomon in Proverbs 15 says, it says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh one stirs it up all the more. So peace making is about not being reactive, but responding with truth with love, with truth, with grace, dealing with the other person, 
as someone who's created in the image of God, irrespective of where they are or whether I agree with them or not. Those are some critical pieces of peacemaking that I think have been lost. Uh, one of the phrases that we used it this morning, you did, Caleb, and we use it now. It's a, it's a scripture I keep going back to over and over and over. It comes out of James. We need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So those are just some from the word about peacemaking rather than peacekeeping. I believe that peacemaking, as Jesus would have us to do it, requires a commitment to disturb the peace of those who are disturbing the peace. Because the people who are disturbing the peace whether they're right, left, in between, they think they're at peace and they think they're bringing peace. And if you look at Jesus's walk on earth, that's what he did for the three and a half years that after he lost his ministry. He disturbed the peace of those who thought they were keeping peace by keeping things just as they are, by having their particular groups, this is my group, with group number one and anybody else is under us. And Jesus came and disturbed the peace. I mean, I've said in the past that the scribes and Pharisees tolerated Jesus' preaching, teaching, and healing. But when he came into the temple on that Monday and just overthrew the money changers, he was dead on Friday. They could tolerate his preaching, teaching, and healing. But when you mess with the money, when you mess with how we operate our system, you got to go. So I believe that peacemaking is disturbing the peace of those who are really disturbing the I agree with that, and I think one of the reasons why we get in the mode of peacekeeping as opposed to peacemaking is that we identify peace as yielding to whoever we're the most afraid of right now. And um, I think that instead what we see of it, what we see as peace is what the Apostle Paul's doing in Galatians one and two, when he says to Peter, uh, "You're not walking in step with the gospel by refusing to sit with the Gentiles." The Gentiles had no power and had no voice. If he had simply kept the peace, it would have been with whoever had the power in the moment, and he would have let those without voice uh, go away. And instead, he said, I did not yield to that for a moment, not in order to have confrontation, not in order to fight, but so that the gospel would be preserved for you. I think that's peacemaking. So there have been these times where you have perhaps stepped into peacemaking spaces to disturb the peace of those disturbing the peace. That's going to end up in a sermon, and I ain't going to ain't going to quote you. I'm just going to act like I did it. Get that credit. And then we believe that it's been a calling or a conviction 
Uh, it's been a sense of the Spirit leading us to do what we feel like is the right thing. And yet we hear from fellow Jesus followers, derision, ridicule, name-calling, when we didn't set out to make enemies, especially of our brothers and sisters, but somehow we've been put into that category of enemy or other. How shall we respond when we step into those peacemaking spaces and receive resistance, not from the broader community, but from within the church? Kit, have you ever <laughs> gotten an email once or twice? Yeah. Why don't you start us off? Yeah. So, um, uh, so in 2004, when uh, anti-immigrant propositions and uh, uh, legis legislative initiatives started uh, here in Arizona, I stayed up all night uh, crying out to God and looking on the internet to try and find friends. You see, I live in an immigrant community and we have been there since 1982. And um, it, the, the work of the Word of God, which had been stirring in our lives, in our ministry, in my life, about God's heart for the immigrant, God's heart for the least, last, lost, and left out, just started calling out. And, uh, and I said, Lord, how do we react? How do we respond? Do we just let it, do we let all of the intolerance and all of the abusive uh, things that are going to uh, happen just roll over and do nothing because what are our tools? And long story short, um, we started realizing that in order for us to move forward, we were going to have to be public and we were going to have to join, uh, just like I said a minute ago, with these allies, with these co-laborers, most of whom were from the body of Christ and figure out how to speak about the things of God uh, publicly as it represented our community. And the backlash wasn't immediate, but it started. And it started uh, becoming, how dare you? How dare you stand publicly like that? Um, it felt so political to so many of our old friends. What we were trying to do, which was desperately enter into the conversation, our Arizona conversation. And so many of those uh, propositions and pieces of legislation came to a forefront in 2010 or came to a head with SB 1070. And um, now we knew uh, that we had no choice. But we always would say, um, whether it was somebody coming up to us personally or a donor stopped giving or uh, whatever the interaction was, we'd say, I know it looks like politics, but it's really just love. This is our community. And these family members have stories we've known in some cases for decades and we see their faces, and we know their children, and we know the journey they're on, and the terror that's in our community has become very personal. And so we started walking through what felt like conflict uh, at times, but 
oftentimes it felt like we were joining something that God was doing and giving us the courage to keep standing up and to not be afraid and to recognize that this was the very particular time we were called uh, to live out the gospel in this way. So on a smaller scale, but in a community where this community is seen as not having, not being, not doing, um, it's important for us to then speak to and do what is just in that community. So my adventure started with a reporter that was coming down to our neighborhood to do a story about what she perceived as danger in our community. And uh, the four, by the way, the story didn't get to make it to the paper. And the reason is I told her that she was coming to report a lie because the community she was standing in was safe and peaceful. And it was made up of people who had lived there a long time. But because there was one incident in that community that happened about a block away, she came into the street where I, we were working to build community and have a, a community garden and a playground and build a sense of safety and provision within that community. Uh, she decided that that was a place to tell a story about violence. And because I confronted a very popular newspaper reporter, that story didn't make it. And I continue to tell the story and make sure the story is known that it is a beloved community and it was that before they got there. And it has been that since its inception. And the lies and the myths about the areas where our churches are has been, our churches, our areas have been defamed by what is being reported about us And so some people, even in this room, may be afraid to come to the location where our churches are. But there have been more killings and shootings in a place where I happen to live now, which is far north in Phoenix, uh, northeast section near Paradise Valley. There have been more incidents of that than there have been in the community she wanted to report on. Speaking truth to power is the important thing that we do to introduce the truth about the safety, peace, and the wholeness of a community. That's the part that we just haven't been hearing about. Uh, It's a way to disrupt the lies. So what I want to say about that tonight is that this is the thing that we're doing here today. A lot of the things have been named uh, about politics, but it's really about policy. Because the politics that have, uh, the policies that have been uh, put together about the various areas of the community have been, uh, I would say, instructional and supporting the lies that are told and made the others and made us afraid of each other and disrupted relationship and caused us not to have the unity that we should have that would make all of the Phoenix Valley, all of the Valley of the Sun to flourish. 
that is the interruptions that I want to see happen. Warren, why do you roll with that, bro? And the question was about places where we have. So when you've been out there disturbing the peace of those who disturb the peace, and you get pushback, not from the broader community, but from within the church, derision, does, is that happening? Well, I got Brother, a good one that... for you. I got just three. I'm just or, winding them up. Maybe three or four weeks ago, I was invited with about 150 other faith leaders to a huge conference on mental health in the Valley of the Sun. I was not a speaker, I was not on the panel. I just invited and I went because uh, I have mental health issues in my family. Uh, many of our, our, our parishioners deal with it. Uh, a lot of the cases of police brutality and police shootings are the result of people who are mentally ill and they call the police instead of police solving the problem, they shoot people. So, so I went, it was four hours and I, I, I sat there and I heard the different speakers speak and I heard, I saw the panel at, at, at the end of the program, there was a panel like this and I kept looking on the agenda and I kept waiting and I kept waiting. And then finally it came to the end. And so the moderator was, was talking about just this wonderful experience, how we've had 150 faith leaders here. We've talked about mental health. And she said, are there any comments from the floor? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I said, I am Warren A. Stewart Sr. And thank you, Bishop Dolan, for this conference. But I said, how can you have an interfaith conference on mental health and never mention the effects of mental health on black people? I said, I kept waiting that somebody, you talked about indigenous mental health, you talked about uh, uh, Hispanic mental health, you had Jewish speakers, you had all cut Baha'i speakers, how, how could you have a four-hour conference about mental health in the Valley of the Sun and never have one person to speak about it from the perspective of, of an African-American? And the moderator said, oh, Dr. Stewart, Dr. Stewart, uh, it, it was not intentional. I said, that's the problem. You didn't even think about black people and mental health. It didn't cross your mind. And that's the problem. Do you want to drop? Thank you so much. Russell, I heard that some people said not nice things about you. I'm not aware. On the internet. I'm not aware of that. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think that I think often about a, an older man from my home state, Mississippi, who was telling me uh, one time about his father who had been a uh, pastor of a white church in central Mississippi and moved to integrate the church back in the 60s, I think. The deacons rebelled against that and they got a visit from the Ku Klux Klan 
saying you ought to listen to your deacons. And this man said that his dad uh, refused to yield and said, no, gospel of Jesus Christ is what's most important. He was fired. They had to move when this man was a teenager, move away from his friends. His dad had to take a job as a a night janitor at a, a hospital, I believe. Very difficult time for their family. So when his dad was on his deathbed, that he called him, called his son, and he said, son, I'm really sorry about having to move in your junior year of high school, disrupting your whole life. And my friend said, dad, I was completely distant from the things of God in my own world. And when that happened, I finally knew that this wasn't a job for you, that there actually was something real here. You lost a church and you gained your son. And I think often when you're in that kind of moment that we've been talking about right now, sometimes we look simply at the people who are right in front of us and we don't think about those who actually are overhearing and who want to know, is this really just about how you end up appearing or how you... Uh, end up getting what you want or is there really something more at stake here and that's what I think for for when we're in those moments of wanting to give in either to cowardice or to combativeness that's what we ought to keep in mind well I wanted to defer to Warren because you said you didn't want all of us to respond to every question I'm trying to be submissive to your leadership this would be a good time to start. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize it was a debate. No, I, I guess I was more reluctant because I feel that, um, I don't know, compared to what you all have lived through and experienced, um, I mean, the space that I've ministered in over the years, people talk about how hard it is in pastoral ministry, and it is but I've not lived the same types of things. I will say this, uh, anyone that's in a leadership role, anyone, I don't care what place it is, uh, when you seek to lead people, there will be people that cheer you and people that jeer you and that people that want you gone. Have I had things done, said, wrong about me? Yes. Have I lost people from church? Yes. Sometimes from something just like quoting Dr. King and people saying, I won't go into what all they said, but I mean, and so a loss of donors, loss of people, loss of other stuff. Yeah. Yes. So how do you respond to that? Let's say two things. One, um, I have to be tender-hearted toward them and choose to forgive them because God has forgiven me in Christ Jesus. That, that's the issue. Be tender-hearted toward one another, forgiving one another in the same way that God in Christ has forgiven you. That's, that's a word to us. I preach it. I better eat my own cooking, right? So that's one of the things. It's forgiveness has to reign because there will be hurts, there will be wrongs, 
And another thing I would just say, I said this to somebody the other day, I said, look, somebody's got to be the adult here. How many times we deal with other people that are really childish? Somebody has to choose to be the adult. And that means suffering injustice, suffering wrong, suffering slander, suffering people that want you fired, suffering all that stuff for the sake of Christ, knowing this. And this has been a, something that's helped me over the years. And I first heard it put this way by Oz Guinness in his book, The Call. And he said, we need to learn to live before an audience of one whose opinion trumps all others. That is so true. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 puts this way, we want this to be our ambition, to be pleasing to Christ. And until I can move or anybody else can move in a leadership role to saying, Lord Jesus, I'm more concerned about what you think and what you've called me to do than the barometer or the thermometer that's out there of public opinion polls. And so it's just, that's a steadying process and the ability to be able then to forgive and keep on speaking the truth. And there's times when I've had to apologize for how I've spoken it, because it's not been loving, it's not been charitable. And I've had to come back and say, I want to ask you to forgive me for the way that I said that without necessarily asking forgiveness or what I said. So. So stepping into these spaces of peacemaking, experiencing resistance and pushback, ridicule, derision, uh, it can oftentimes feel isolated and alone. I know for many of us, as, as we've tried to live as peacemakers in our family, in our workplace, in our school, in our churches, we're feeling the resistance as well. Uh, how has, as you've uh, ministered in, the, in these ways, how have friends and allies been helpful to you uh, in this ministry of peacemaking? So um, the first funny story, um, when, so picking up what I said the last time, so I, fa- I cried out, found my first friend, uh, a Catholic community organizer who said, had, had never met an evangelical before. And she told me I was sort of scared to meet you because I thought maybe you would be a mean person. And, um, yeah. And so we had, we had coffee and I just poured my heart out. I've lived all these years in an immigrant community and all of this suffering is coming into uh, the families that I love. And I don't have t- any tools and, and she said, I can teach you. And so I joined her. And so the first press conference this ecumenical group had um, was with the reporters from the Republic. And I went and kind of stood in the back because I was a newbie. And uh, they were interviewing them about these pieces of legislation and what is the church going to do and how is the faith community going to stand together uh, with the immigrant communities that we aligned ourselves with. And then one reporter said to the group that was there ready for the reporters, don't you have any conservative Christians with you? And I was literally like four rows back and they all turned around simultaneously and they said, we have one. And uh, and 
and then brought me forward. And I go. Yeah. It, well, I was like, okay, I just told the truth. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm standing with my community that I love, and I just can't be silent. And they kind of looked at me like, is that it? And I said, that's really all I have to say right now. And because um, I was so new at actually representing what it meant for the body of Christ to rise up on behalf of brothers and sisters in Christ who happened uh, to be suffering. And, uh, and so that's the first moment. And then I started meeting allies. Not, o- not only in our city, some of them were people I would have never thought to walk the journey with, but nationally. By the time we got to 2007, um, there was the early beginnings of what's called the Evangelical Immigration Table. Some of you have connected with them over the years, and they became my friends. And then nationwide, uh, the National Immigration Forum was a conservative group. Little by little, by the time we got to SB 1070, people came from those um, allied communities, all mostly from evangelical stories. They came and they stood with us. You know, it was 105 days that we were, that we did a 24-7 vigil in front of the Capitol before Jan Brewer signed SB 1070. Lots and lots of young Latino leaders that run stuff today. You know, out of that fiery furnace grows all of this goodness. Uh, We have leaders today who stand because of SB 1070 in the 105 days in the heat that we stayed, and vigils and vigils and prayer and marches and candles all night long, all day long, and people came from all over the country to stand with us. And I, that's when I knew we weren't alone. Stuff was being birthed here in Arizona and Phoenix, but it was being born all over the United States. And we still stand together to this day because you know this is another battleground. That's a long story to tell how, how we got to from today to, from then to today. Uh, maybe we'll get to some of it. When the Lord um, brought me out here to Arizona in 83, um, I really wasn't sure why I was here. And I've gone to a lot of places when um, I would be the first one or the only one and not have any family or friends there. And I questioned God about that because I didn't choose You know, he kind of opened the door and shoved me through it. Um, And so all through the the path that the Lord has chosen for me, he has had me to cross boundaries, barriers, go into places that uh, normally people who look like me, sound like me, talk like me, don't go. Um, And even uh, after I got out here, I was a stranger in the community where I was sent to serve and sat for a couple of years trying to figure out, you know, am I ever going to know people? 
but God had given me a desire to help and to serve, and I needed to sit and learn. I'm saying all that to say this, that the first journey is always a lonely one, and I didn't have allies that I thought I had. But when the Lord called me to ministry, he called another woman uh, along with me, and we have been walking lockstep at the same time, even though he, she moved somewhere else, we're still connected at the heart. And so we, without knowing it, we, we instinctively reach out to each other in crisis and we have prayer time together. But then I get into this training mode that I get an opportunity to learn to train uh, in holistic ministry. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to go to my people and I'm going to be able to train in our churches and they're going to be so excited because we're going to be building a community and drastically changing things and we're going to help change the, the, the neighborhood in a way that is going to bless everybody and, and uh, no invitations came. And I was challenged to cross cultures and denominations. And then I had to go back to my church and there'd be, uh, there was a guy that used to sit out in the parking lot and, and when I came in, he'd say, you just tell me what's that got to do with salvation? <laughs> so I felt very alone. But what was happening is God was sending me into and crossing uh, denominations and, and building bridges and and, and the Lord revealed to me that if you're going to build bridges, if you're going to be a bridge, you have to recognize you're going to be walked on and driven over. And that there's a suffering that goes along with it. But along the way, people get to the other side. They might come back and get you. They might care enough that you brought them over. So as I'm, I'm saying this to say that God then has broadened my territory and sent me to places and across ethnicities and generations because this is the reconciliation road that the Lord has had me on. So when it comes to allies, they've come along as the Lord has sent me. And now I can say I have a whole village of, of allies and um Sometimes I don't even know how many I have and who I can count on, but I know that when I need prayer, they're there, and some of them are in this audience. Yeah, to have friends and allies is absolutely essential. I think if you look at the Lord Jesus, his strategic approach, he sent them out two by two. That's not, he could have covered more territory, sent them out 12 different directions. He didn't, two by two. That's instructive, that's purposeful. That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is a habit of some, but gather together all the more for the purpose of encouragement and accountability, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds is that accountability piece. That's, that's uncomfortable at times. It's, it's to needle, prick, provoke. We need that. Uh, Caleb, there are times when you and I had a partnership and still have a partnership, but different. You know, there'd be times you'd come in and, boy, we were like two bulls in a pasture. We were button heads, pushing each other. But there is no question that it would, there was an iron sharpening an iron. I learned from you. You learned from me, but I learned from you. It, it works both ways. 
And there's an encouragement component. There's an accountability component that we all need as people. And so friends and allies are indispensable, have to be. Uh, look at the Apostle Paul. You know, he was not just a loner that was out there. He always had some people with him. And, and even when he was in prison, he had people come to stay with him. He'd write letters about, send so-and-so to me, and this person's been a great ministry. We're not meant to go it alone. We have to know that there's friends and allies. That doesn't mean that we will always agree, even with those friends and allies. And as one of my mentors in seminary used to say, it was a marriage context, but it works in any relationship. If both of you agree on everything, then one of you is unnecessary. You try that on, see if it's not right. God has blessed me over my lifetime with significant mentors and older men and women who have been there at the right time for me. I could call on, I could go to them and just, I could open up and let them know what was going on. I could, I could just, I could relieve my anger. Um, Jesus Christ is is my utmost friend, and one of the lessons we learned in the fight for the King holiday was don't give up, persevere. And 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 as I share that lesson with people, I tell them that I had a very special friend with a capital F, and that was Jesus Christ, who just kept moving telling me, don't give up, persevere. But I want to tell a short story. So when uh, Governor Evan Meekham, who had run for governor, for governor several times and lost, but in a three-way race, he came out and won, and it shocked everybody. But he ran on a campaign, and this was in 1986, that if he became governor, he would rescind the executive order that his predecessor had made for a Martin Luther King Jr. holiday just for the executive branch, not for the whole state. And so, Pastor Henry Barnwell, uh, uh, the father of Pastor Albert Barnwell, he and I were, I was a chair, he was, a, he was the vice chair of, of our coalition uh, to fight for the King holiday. And we were able to get a meeting with uh, Governor-elect Meekum with about 18 leaders, uh, white, black, there was even a Jewish person was there, uh, 18 respected leaders, all of the black elected officials, some Hispanic leaders. And so our goal was to ask Evan Meekum, would you allow, I said, before you was, we said, before you rescind the King holiday, this executive order in January, when you take office, why don't you let the legislature try one more time to pass it? And I never forget what Governor Lake Meekham said to this group of 18 adults, respected leaders from around the state. He said, I didn't come here to debate or discuss the Martin Luther King holiday with you people. He said, black people don't need a holiday, you need jobs. 
He said, Martin Luther King Jr. is not worthy of a holiday. Well, it was a short meeting. <laughs> I was presiding, I was asked to preside. And so that evening I was on the news because the news media knew we were meeting and I gave an interview. But I never forget the late Mrs. Lucille Reese, Sister Lucille Reese, who was a member of our congregation. She was very close to our family. She was in her 90s. She called me. She said, baby, baby, I saw you on TV, the news tonight. She said, pastor, don't let anybody get you that angry ever again. I never will forget that. She said, pastor, don't let anybody ever let you get that angry again. Now, she didn't see the real anger because the real anger <laughs> was not before the cameras. <laughs> but it was. Uh, did you vote for Evan in that? It's too personal. Don't, don't worry about it. Dr. Moore? So, sometimes when you're, when you're doing this kind of stuff, you don't realize how abnormal the situation is because you become accustomed to it i realized at one point that the most terrifying words that would ever come across my phone in a text message would be praying for you because i would think oh no what's happened now and my wife said you know this praying for you probably shouldn't evoke that kind of uh horror uh, and over time, my friends started saying, hey, nothing's going on. I just felt led to pray for you to preface it. And in the middle of all of that, uh, what I found was that God gave to me a group of friends I would have never chosen, not necessarily because I didn't like them, but because we just didn't find ourselves in the same place and the kinds of genuine friendships, not just transactional alliances that can come out of that is a, a sign of grace that it really isn't, isn't describable. And I think about it sometimes when there was a study that was done about uh, veterans with trauma who come out of war. And one of these studies said for, for some people, it's not the trauma of what they have experienced in warfare. It's the trauma of being on the other side of it and not having the connection with those kinds of people who were with you in the heat of it. And I think that sometimes when you're involved in some hard work, you find God putting you together with exactly the people that you need for the rest of your life. And I've, I've found that to be true. I love that. And so just as our final question, uh, one of the things that Kit shared with me was this uh, statement by St. Catherine that we sometimes grow weary in carrying the weight of caring for the church. And we love our brothers and sisters and we striving to do this work of peacemaking. Uh, and when we receive resistance, it can be a discouragement. And so... Many of us, especially over the last few years, perhaps have drifted into cynicism, 
Dr. Moore, you mentioned that, or nihilism, it's all just pointless, what's the point? What encouragement would you give to us uh, as many of us are feeling anxiety and deep concern about the next year, um, but also beyond that, we kind of thought maybe it'd just be fixed or something by now, but here we are so many years later. Um, what encouragement would you have for us as we're facing down, not just this year, but the many years to come? So um, I love when Caleb keeps reminding the four of us that all together there's 200 years of ministry. So that makes us feel really, really, really old. Take a nap. And, and, and Rick wants to take a nap. Um, I think the, the good word that old people can give, especially... <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> I think Dr. Stewart's actually older than me. Well, I, I don't, maybe he's not. And um, um, is that um, that word from Jesus, if you can hear it in your heart, in your head, um, he said, I'm going to tell you a story. That's uh, such a great way for us to engage with one another whenever we tell each other our stories. I'm going to tell you a story so that you will always pray and you will never give up. Luke 18. So I'm going to tell you a story so that you will always pray and never give up. And so I think that's the gift of our stories because we're still here and, and we're, not, we're, not, we're not cynical, none of us. We just are need naps. <laughs> but it's because along this journey that's definitely been hard often, we learned to pray. And it's, it's why I follow St. Catherine for a fact and why we learn how to bear the burden of the church or carry the weight of the church because we've learned to pray and not give up. And I'm the oldest on the platform. Um, I, I really would say that the most encouraging thing for me has been to know that I don't have to carry it by myself that I don't carry the burden. The Lord told me to take his yoke upon me and learn of him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So yes, there are cares and yes, there's empathy and compassion and I'm an empath. So, I mean, when people get hurt, they get a splinter in their finger, I cry. Nonetheless, even the, the venom that comes toward me, I realize is not because I have created a venomous situation. It's because the person who has that venom shooting toward me is in need of compassion because they're in pain. 
there's something dying inside of them that they would want to destroy something or someone else. Um, take his yoke. Let him help us carry the burden. It is not mine. This world, and I was reminded, and I tell my, my, my prayer partner all the time, remember the souls belong to God. Amen. You know, when I resigned from being a senior pastor a number of years ago, I guess eight or nine now, just before right the election of 2016. That was good timing. Yeah, that was very strategic, Caleb. I wanted to see you. I want to throw you in the deep end, bro. Okay. So anyway, uh, I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, you know, and about that time, what I do now, for most of you may not know, but I now, I, people say you're still pastoring. I said, yeah, but I'm pastoring pastors. I don't have a church. I'm working on the church. And it's been amazing how many younger pastors, almost everyone's younger, it seems that I am, but how many younger pastors have called up when all this was hitting, when we were getting COVID and the weaponizing of all the stuff with COVID, when there was the, the calls for uh, social justice in all different forms, when there was uh, different issues happening along those lines. You remember like it was rapid fire, like one wave, another wave, another wave, and people were off balance, which is not a bad place to be for change. But I can't tell you how many pastors called me and said, have you ever seen anything like this before? I said, yeah, I have. We all have. Some of you have. And that is when I say, and I'm talking about stuff they don't remember, because in many cases they were alive. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. There's tremendous civil unrest, civil rights movement within this country that people like uh, Dr. Stewart and Dr. King and many, many others stood in the gap in huge ways that I so love and respect them for. But there is a lot of, I said, but there are assassinations then of civil rights leaders, of politicians, of presidents. There were schools, students on college campuses that were shot down by, by National Guard. The Vietnam War was there. It was not popular at that stage by any stretch of imagination. There was so much civil unrest over that. There was an oil embargo where there was rationing and all these types of things. And I said, yeah, I've seen stuff like this. But this is different. And I think a big part, I'm just say this, a big part of it, I think, that's now, not then, is social media. I'm, I'm a fan of social media, but not when it's abused the way that it is, where people just take off on that. And that is fuel on the fire. Now, I'm going to leave that. No preaching here. The reason I told them that is I said, look, we're still here, like you said, kid. The church is still here. Christ is still being preached. People are still coming to faith in Jesus. God is on the throne. We've come through difficult times before. God is the one who's in charge. Don't forget that. And a psalm that, that God brought, brought back to mind over and over and over for me for the hope that's there, kid, is some trust in chariots and others trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let's never forget that. 
It's not a person. It's not a political party. It's not a program. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And that's the thing that I believe does provide hope. It brings hope. It's what we have to stay focused on for us ourselves personally and for the people that God has put in our sphere of influence. We got to keep pointing them back to Jesus. He suffered injustice, didn't he? And yet he didn't revile because he loves us. So there is there's just so much in that, and, and that does bring hope, and that's where we need to stay. And that's what, that's what the world needs to see. They need to see in that. People who are outside of faith, and Russell, you talked about some tonight, they need to see that how can you be so confident? How can you have so much hope when there's all this going around? And we need to be ambassadors of that. L-O-V-E, loves. Um, yesterday I preached from Second Thessalonians, the third chapter, verses three through five. And in the fifth verse, Paul is offering what is called a wish prayer to the Thessalonians. He says, may you be moved to the love of God and steadfastness in Christ. And I was talking about love, how love has sustained us as a pastoring people in my, near, uh, my nearly 47 years. I said pastoring at the same church at the same address. Virtually all of my adult life, I said it, love. But I recalled what I was taught by the late Pastor Glenn Muncie. He was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Coffeeville, Kansas, where I was reared white pastor, but he, he taught us New Testament as literature in the community college. And when he taught us about love and about agape love, love it, which is unconditional, he gave a definition of love that I've never forgotten. He said, agape love is saying, I love you and I want you to become all that God has created you to become but if you fail, I still love you. I love you and I want you to become all that God has created you to become. But if you fail, I still love you. And then I told my congregation, I love Donald Trump. I have to. When we were expecting our fourth son, now almost 17 years ago, and choosing a name, uh, we wanted to name him Noah until I started sounding the name first and last together, Noah Moore. <laughs> and I thought he might think I was trying to embed a hidden code here in his name. So we changed it at the last minute to Jonah. And at the moment when I was the most exhausted and ready to give up, I had been working in the same community of people for all of my life. We knew all the same lingo. We had all the same backstories. We had all the same acronyms, all of that. And suddenly I found myself in a non-denominational church of a place I didn't know. 
Uh, and I was just thinking, Lord, what, what, what? I don't see any sign of what you're doing out there. And it happened to be the day I was baptizing my fourth son, teenager, professing faith in Christ in a horse trough there on the platform of the church. And it hit me right as I said, I baptize you, Jonah, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus saying, you seek after signs, you will have no sign but the sign of Jonah. As the son of man was in the belly, as the son of, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the son of man be in the belly of the earth. And as the people of Nineveh repented at his preaching, that's the sign. And it was as though God said, what right do you have to be exhausted and complaining and ready to give up when here in front of you is your beloved son who is entrusting himself to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the same way that people all over the world are coming to faith and being amazed by grace in the same way and the spirit is marching on what else do you want? And I think sometimes when we're at that point of seeking hope, what we really need from God is not so much hope, but gratitude. And with the gratitude comes the hope. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm just going to ask Miss um, Linda to pray for us, and then we'll conclude our time together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for our time together all day today and for tonight and for your heart, oh God, I ask that you would just infuse us all with your love, with the promises of your word, oh God, that we would walk out every word, that we would believe everything you've promised, oh God, and that we would become the body of Christ that you've called us to be, walking as one in unity in love, in forgiveness, in compassion, oh God, that we would leave this place changed, willing to walk out what you have called us to do and to be in the valley of the sun and across this nation, that people will know you have sent us because of the love that we have for one another. And I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all so much for being here tonight.